God's church has always striven to follow the example of Jesus Christ and the apostles. And so in today's sermon, we'll see what God expects us to do in his word in preparing for the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread. As we heard in the announcements by Mr. League, only baptized members will be taking the Passover. But I'd like to encourage you teenagers to examine yourself in preparation for the Spring Festival as well. You need goals for the new year. You need to see how you can improve, how you can grow, how you can change, and how you can develop. And by the way, uh, we do appreciate our teenagers and their service to our congregation and to the work. You know, some longtime servants of God's church were teenagers when they were called. Of course, the prophet Daniel and his three friends were teenagers when they were taken captive to Babylon. And then after they were trained, God used them very significantly. Some teens in our day and age have had to face persecution. They had to decide whether they were going to obey God or obey their parents. And, of course, Ephesians 6.1 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. But I know of some who have had to, in ages 16 and 17, who are now leaders in God's church, who had to stand up for what was right. And they made that decision, even as a teenager. I want to tell you a little story about kids in church. Of course, some of these are humorous stories. One mainstream Christian tradition is to sprinkle a baby in church. They call it christening. That's not biblical. God's church, of course, follows the example of Jesus and, and the apostles and taking little children up in their arms, laying hands on them, and blessing them. We follow that as we've established that as a tradition, following Christ's example. We do that at the annual Festival of Tabernacles in the fall. But in this particular story... After christening of his baby brother in church, Jason sobbed all the way home in the back seat of the car. His father asked him three times what was wrong. Finally, the boy replied, That preacher said he wanted us brought up in a Christian home, and I wanted to stay with you guys. <laughs> so even the son was able to see that maybe his parents weren't so Christian, even though they were supposedly attending a Christian church. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, as we examine instructions and in preparation for the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread. This is a general principle here, but a very profound one and very vital to our Christian growth. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. The Apostle Paul was being criticized, but he said, you need to examine yourself. And if you don't have this scripture marked or underlined in your Bible, you need to highlight it. It's certainly a profound instruction that God gives us. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless you are disqualified? But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Now, there are several major points in this particular scripture. One is that we need to examine ourselves, and we traditionally cover this subject before Passover every year. There was, of course, uh, an ancient uh, 
Greek philosopher named Socrates who lived in the 5th century B.C., and he had a statement, Know thyself, of course, with the ancient King James translation from the Greek, Know thyself, the unexamined life is not worth living. And so that was a principle that those in Corinth knew. They understood that. But the Apostle Paul gives us a much deeper challenge. Know you not that you are in the faith. And so we have to test ourselves time and time again. We need to know what faith are we talking about. Faith in this context is a body of belief. Are you in the true body of belief? Have you proven from the Bible the true doctrines that Christ taught and, of course, the apostles taught? Every year we follow the biblical instruction to examine ourselves. The sermon title today is Know Yourself and prepare for Passover. How do we know ourselves? On the secular level, many of us have taken aptitude tests or interest inventories or personality profile analysis. And if you haven't, perhaps you could learn more about yourself by taking some of those inventories. Engaged couples often take the prepare and enrich inventory. And we have three ministers here that I know of in the Charlotte congregation who are certified counselors for Prepare and Rich. Mr. Lee uh, certified, uh, Mr. Rod McNair, and Mr. Charles O'Gwynn. So if any young couples are interested in possibly getting engaged, uh, it's good to take that inventory ahead of time. It helps you to know yourself. It helps in a very short period of time to know whether the possible groom and the possible bride have something in common or whether they have, as the inventory may show, growth sections, growth spheres, uh, because you don't agree on one of the 12 or 13 different uh, spheres, which include uh, family relations, child rearing, um, entertainment, uh, money management, and all the other sectors that you uh, will come in contact with. Well, that's just another way to know yourself, and it certainly has been a big help to uh, young couples who were interested in one another and wanting to know about each other. Some of us have difficulty in knowing ourselves. Robert Burns was a Scottish national poet of the 18th century. He described that inability to see ourselves in his poem, To a Louse, <laughs> interesting title, in verse 8. O would some power the gifty gee us to see ourselves as others see us. Or in English, O would some power the gift to give us to see ourselves as others see us. Now, we don't know sometimes what we look like to others. And uh, in our spokesman club, sometimes we have videotape of our speeches and we begin to say, did I do that? Do I really see myself that way? I shouldn't confess to you, but I know when I see videos of my sermons, I, I do this. I, I fiddle with my, my ring. So now if you'll, you'll be watching me throughout the whole sermon, whether I'm going to be fiddling with my ring or not. But we don't know ourselves unless we see ourselves from a different perspective. But some refuse to examine themselves. They live in denial. They may deny that they have an alcohol problem. They may deny that they are addicted to pornography. They may deny that they are addicted to certain uh, illegal drugs, or any drugs for that matter. But now is the time for reality. 
Now as we get closer to the end, we need to again face reality. Some of you may have seen the latest Newsweek magazine. This came out this week. Apocalypse Now. Tsunamis, earthquakes, nuclear meltdowns, revolutions, economies on the brink, what the blank is next. We are having to face reality, and that's why many of you are here, because you are facing reality. You're not just eating, drinking, and uh, chasing after women, you know, because you want to escape reality. You're facing up to reality. I had to go through that process myself back in 1959 when I was personally facing nuclear war between the United States and the Soviet Union. It was called MAD, Mutual Assured Destruction. If anyone started a war, we knew that we'd destroy each other, so that fear supposedly prevented nuclear war. But that's all I could see on the horizon was nuclear war. Those suffering in Japan are facing realities. And you heard Mr. League mentioned in our bulletin today from the world ahead, uh, Dr. Ornell's commentary on be prepared. And I've asked in our special presentations, how many of you have a week's worth of water to save up? You have extra food. And a very few percent of those people are prepared. But we in God's church need to prepare. As Dr. Ornell mentions in his commentary here, that yes, we expect God to take care of us, but we have to do our part. And I hope, uh, again, that you will read that uh, exhortation in the church bulletin today and really take action and take inventory and see what you have. You know, those of us who've lived in Southern California have experienced several earthquakes, and uh, you realize that you need to have what is called uh, an emergency kit. I still have an emergency kit in my automobile from California, from having lived out there. And uh, you also, of course, uh, need to be prepared to to have uh, to go at any moment's notice. And if you were told you had to evacuate your home, which some of us had to do, uh, I didn't have to personally, but I know some of our ministers did in Southern California because of the fires coming down there towards their home, they had to evacuate. And if you had to evacuate your home, what are you going to take with you? Well, I hope you take your Bible. Perhaps you, I know one of our friends has a grab-and-go bag, they call it. It's all ready. It's in the closet. And if you have to go at a moment's notice, uh, you can take those valuables with you. We do need to be prepared, and we need to face reality. As we examine ourselves, we are facing reality. And Christ demonstrated that body of faith. Let's read that again. In 2 Corinthians 13:5, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves? Do you know yourselves? And, of course, that's the theme of the sermon today, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you are disqualified. Christ demonstrated the body of faith that we're to live. Let's turn to John, the 13th chapter, John 13. Mainstream Christianity ignores so much of Christ's instruction, and we saw several examples of that in Dr. Meredith's sermon last week on the true Jesus Christ of the Bible. Here's one example of mainstream Christianity's rejection of Christ's example. And isn't it just, well, actually, in my opinion, it's insane to think that here are mainstream Christian doctrines that say 
we are not going to do what Jesus did. He set us an example, but no, he fulfilled the law for us so we don't have to do anything. All that he did was not for our example. Is that what the Bible says? Of course not. In John 13, Jesus, the night before he was crucified, during the, as it says, during dinner, it says actually, and supper being ended, <clears throat> verse 2, actually the, the Greek or the margin has it, during uh, supper, the devil having already put in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus rose from supper, verse 4, took a towel and girded himself and poured water in a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them. And so Peter, of course, rejected uh, that, and Jesus said, Look, if I don't wash you, verse 8, you have no part with me. And Jesus said, Well, you know what the lesson of all this is about? Do you know why I'm doing this? He said in verse 13, You call me teacher and Lord. You say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. How many mainstream Christian churches follow exactly what Jesus said to do? Maybe there are some few that do it. Actually, there are remnants of the true church of God scattered all over the world that somehow get in touch with the main body of the church and we find out what are they doing. They are doing the foot-washing ceremony following exactly what Christ instructed. And we know, yes, they are a remnant of the true church. Now, not every group that washes feet, that's not the only thing, is uh, of the true church. But here is what uh, Christ said. For I have given you an example, verse 15, that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Oh, yes, mainstream Christianity is greater than the master. They won't follow his example. Nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them, or happy are you if you do them. Christ gave an example. I won't turn there, but First Peter 2, 21 Uh, You should know that's a memorization scripture. For to this you are called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. But mainstream Christianity said, no, we're not going to follow his example at all. We'll do a few other things that he said. We'll we'll agree with the Sermon on the Mount and uh, try to do some of those things in the Golden Rule. But they're not going to follow his example of keeping the weekly Sabbath. He's Lord of the Sabbath, Mark 2.28, not Lord of Sunday. And, of course, uh, he kept the annual festivals. I pointed that out in the special presentation. John, the seventh chapter, of course, shows that he kept the Feast of Tabernacles, for example. So Christ set us an example. And now mainstream Christianity keeps what it calls the Lord's Supper or Communion. Many of those groups do it every Sunday morning. Others do it at uh, other times during the year. We have coming up in May every year, the United States observes what is called Memorial Day. And the day commemorates the memory of those who died in military service. Those who uh, remember the death of their loved ones. But do we remember their death 
every Sunday morning. No, it's an annual memorial. And those who keep communion every Sunday or other days are not following Christ's instructions or his example. We have, by the way, uh, Tomorrow's World, the current Tomorrow's World uh, magazine, and uh, hope you've read my cover article. I'm going to tell how many of you have read my cover article on Space Wars? Hmm. Hmm. Only 42%. We need to do better than that. But, of course, more importantly, I would recommend that you read uh, the article on Easter or Passover on page 22. Easter or Passover, which is for Christians? Uh, subheads, uh, Christianizing the festivals of ancient sex goddesses. Is that what uh, Christians supposedly enjoy doing and uh, honoring the goddess Easter? And then Christianized veneer or solid scriptural practice. Uh, the Gospels show what to do, when to observe the Passover, the meaning of the symbols, Christ is our Passover, the Apostle Paul's teaching. So again, I encourage all of those of you who are new to make sure you read that article on uh, Christmas, uh, Christmas, sorry, same category, <clears throat> Easter or Passover, which is for Christians. So be sure to read that article uh, by Mr. Dexter Wakefield. And uh, it'll, I'm sure you'll find uh, information on it that will be very, very helpful for you. The first Passover recorded in the Bible uh, was marked God's judgment that it was the tenth of the ten plagues on Egypt. All the firstborn, both of man and beast, were to die. We sang that in Psalm 135, uh, page 90 of our hymnal, in the first hymn that we sang today. The, but what happened? The Lord passed over those who had brushed the lamb's blood on the doorposts of their domicile or their home or their residence. The Lord passed over those homes that had the blood. But it said, though the angel came through, or the Lord passed through those who did not have the blood. So you don't want to pass through. What you want is a pass over. And God passes over our sins in the New Testament application. But let's just read that back in Leviticus 23 and verse 5. For those of you who are new, Leviticus 23 is the one chapter that catalogs all of the seven annual holy days and the seven annual festivals. Not all of the festivals are holy days. The Passover, for example, is not a holy day, but it is an annual festival. In Leviticus, the 23rd chapter, we read in verse 5, Leviticus 23 and verse 5, On the fourteenth day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. So again, it's the evening of the 14th day of the Lord's, uh, of the new calendar, God's calendar. Verse, uh, the next verse, verse 6, and on the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. So is this just a physical ritual? No, there is a spiritual lesson that goes along with it. And the Apostle Paul in the strongest corrective letter in the New Testament, uh, made that lesson clear in 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. Now, you'll hear more about this in detail, but I just want to touch upon it uh, at this point in time. 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. Read here in uh, verse uh, 7. 
Purge out there, therefore, the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly, since you truly are unleavened, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. And he instituted that New Testament Passover the night before he was crucified. They had eaten the Passover lamb, but then he instituted the blood, and that is the wine, as symbolic of his blood shed for our sins, and the bread broken for our physical healing. And uh, that was the new covenant that he instituted at that time. Now, as Christ is our Passover, therefore, verse 8, let us keep the feast, as I mentioned in the special presentation. Here is an apostle New Testament command to a Gentile church to keep one of the annual festivals, the Days of Unleavened Bread. Let us keep the feast. He says, of course, they were leavened spiritually. That is, leaven is a type of sin in this case because they had the fornicator, and he just talks about putting him out of the church uh, right here in the same chapter. But he says, therefore, let us keep the feast, verse 8, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So the very profound lesson, which we'll be rehearsing during the Days of Unleavened Bread, is that one of the lessons of the Days of Unleavened Bread is that we replace human nature with divine nature. We replace the leaven of malice and wickedness with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, and that's God's truth. That's one of the wonderful lessons. Protestantism, Catholicism doesn't know that lesson. It is a process that takes a lifetime. And with God's help, Christ in us, we can change our natures from carnal to godly. And that's why we're all here. It takes a lifetime. And we're supposed to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. We'll talk about that perhaps a little later. So he said, let us keep the feast. It's an an exact command for the New Testament. Now, I mentioned, uh, read back in Leviticus 23, on the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. So the annual Sabbaths require that we uh, refrain from our, our normal work as well. But there's one exception of what you can do on the annual holy days, except for the Day of Atonement, And that is, I'll just read it to you. You can write down the margin and and check it later. Exodus 12, 16. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, referring to the days of unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So there is a special... uh, Opportunity that during the annual holy days, God does allow a food preparation in a special way. So that's Exodus 12 and verse 16. So the night to be much observed, which is Monday night, April 18th, uh, the evening of the first holy day, the first day of the unleavened bread, um, we'll be having uh, special dinners all over. By the way, uh, NTBMO. Uh, is the night to be much observed. And that's uh, back in Exodus. Um, I don't have the reference here, but Exodus 23, I believe it is. Night to be much observed. So we will be having group meetings, and uh, Mr. League will be uh, announcing something about that later on. 
So we need to prepare for the days of unleavened bread and the Passover coming up. But what instructions did God give us for the Passover? Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. First Corinthians 11 and verse 23. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul writes in First Corinthians 11 verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. Now again, some Church of God people think you ought to be keeping it on the next night the same way the Jews are keeping it in error on the 15th. But it's very plain, what was the night in which Jesus was betrayed? When did he do that? That was the 14th of Nisan. And so there's no, it's very clear if you're going to follow Christ's example, you're going to do it the way he did. On the same night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. And of course we know it's by his stripes that we were healed. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink in remembrance of me. And so Protestants say as often as you drink. Well, that means as often as you like. No, it doesn't say as often as you like. As often as you drink this throughout the years of your life on that memorial night, which is an annual memorial, then you do show the Lord's death till he comes. You do show this in remembrance of me. So Passover is a remembrance, a memorial of Christ's death. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he come. But he goes on to say in verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. You don't want that to happen to you. So in order to prevent that, what do you do? Verse 28, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For whoever eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. The Apostle Paul had given some corrective instruction earlier in the chapter that they had come to the Passover service, some of them drunk, some of them were just there as kind of a, a feast. They were not really serious and sober about memorializing the death of Christ, and they were not following the, the instructions of Christ in keeping the New Testament Passover. Now, verse 31 is in a very important verse, and one that uh, certainly is key also to knowing ourselves and preparing for the Passover. And something, again, we may not like to do. But verse 31, For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Many of us judge others, even though Jesus said in Matthew 7, Judge not that you be not judged. We condemn others. And there are those who, as I mentioned before, uh, self-appointed spot removers who just go around and, in one case, one of the churches I uh, pastored just to judging every other member in the congregation except himself. But God says to judge yourself that you be not judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, 
When you are come together, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. So the Corinthian church had several problems, and the Apostle Paul was trying to get them back on the right track, and so they would be keeping the Passover the same way uh, he was instructing them to do. So we've seen some of those instructions, including let a man examine himself. We have an article in the Living Church News that is March, April 2009. Uh, You can access it on our website, uh, cogl.org and just put into the search uh, block there, self-examination, key to spiritual growth. That will help you uh, actually uh, cover some of the points I'm covering in the sermon today. For the remainder of the sermon, let's consider several ways. I have actually a specific number of points, but I don't know that I'll have time to cover them all, so I'm not going to tell you how many they are. (laughs) But uh, several ways to examine ourselves And to know ourselves. Number one, answer the question, who are you? How can you know yourself and prepare for the Passover? Number one, answer the question, who are you? Years ago, we had uh, in the Worldwide Church of God uh, an article written by David John Hill uh, by the title of What I Am. And it was a very inspiring article and uh, encouraged uh, the readers to write an essay titled, What I Am. And you were supposed to go pray and ask God to help you to see yourself, to see your weaknesses. I've done it several times, and I I know uh, the instruction said, when you write down a few things that you need to change and grow and overcome, then, uh, you know, ask God to show you some more. And I know after I wrote a few of my problems down, I said, well, that's enough. And, well, oh, I better... Okay, I'll pray and ask God to show me some more and write down some more. Okay, I think that's enough. No, I better go and pray and ask God to show me some more things to overcome. And it's, it was kind of a painful experience, but, you know, there's the word cathartic. It was, it was helpful. It was helped me to uh, realize what I need to overcome and what I need to change. And I would encourage you all to write an essay, What I Am. I think I started mine off, I know, in one of the times. Who am I? I am Richard F. Ames, son of Alice May Hayes Ames and George Franklin Ames. And I am a begotten son of God, and I am a bondservant of Jesus Christ. I know who I am, and all of you need to know who you are as well. It will help you, of course, in... As the Apostle Paul said, know you not your own selves and examine yourselves. Identity is a very important part of God's calling for each and every one of us. Uh, Just to give you an illustration on the national level, this is the uh, March 11th through the 17th uh, International Jerusalem Post. And it had an article in there, actually more of a commentary titled, Why Do We Need a Jewish State Anyway? It was written by... Mr. or Professor Gil Troy, a professor of history at McGill University in Montreal and a Shalom Hartman research fellow in Jerusalem. He's also the author of Why I Am a Zionist, Israel, Jewish Identity, and the Challenges of Today, and his latest book, The Reagan Revolution, a very short introduction. His commentary addresses the issue of what is the identity of Israel. 
Does it have an identity? He says, Judaism is not just a religion. Years ago, my teacher, Dr. Steve Copeland, compared Judaism to an Oreo cookie. Just as the Oreo requires both cream and cookie parts to be an Oreo, Judaism entails intertwined, overlapping religious and national parts. Is Passover a holiday of religious redemption or national liberation? Yes. Is the Western Wall a holy religious site or a national historic site? Again, yes. Belonging to a people, not just a religion, fulfills our identity. But do they know their national mission? Do they really know their identity? They can look back in history. They can read the Bible. But when you go to Israel today, only about 12% of the population in one poll are deeply religious Jews in Israel. The rest are more secular. And so they look back to more of a traditional history rather than to a biblical history. Professor Troy concludes, Herschel was right in what he called alt-new-land, meaning old-new-land. We can enjoy the best of today and yesterday, creating a dynamic modern identity anchored in tradition. Such dynamism should be embraced, celebrated, which is why our holidays use memories to affirm values, and we would never devote a week to denigrating others. So he wants their tradition to be anchored, that is, their modern identity, anchored in tradition, which is fine, to a point. But what tradition does he mean? Does he mean the tradition of the Hebrew Scriptures, which identify the tribe of Judah? Does it include the identity of Judah and its divine mission? And what is its mission? What is the mission of the United States? I address that question in a Tomorrow's World telecast titled, Thanksgiving and Our National Mission. We also have a commentary on our website by the same title. Do you know what our national mission should be for the United States? Do you know what our national mission should be for modern Israel, the tribe of Judah? The answer is right here in Deuteronomy, the fourth chapter. Let's turn back there, Deuteronomy 4. Give this as an illustration of identity and who you are and who I am. Because, in a sense... The mission given in Deuteronomy 4th chapter was a national mission, but it is now subsumed down to a spiritual mission as part of the spiritual body of Christ in the church of God. Deuteronomy, the 4th chapter, and verse 5. Moses says to Israel before they're going into the cross Jordan, into the promised land, Behold... Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, for whatever reason we may call upon him. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day? Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life, and teach them to your children and your grandchildren. 
God Almighty was saying through Moses, here is your identity, here is your mission. All the nations around will see your light, your example, your wonderful obedience to the laws of God. And they'll say, what a great nation. What nation has a God so close to it as your nation? That should be the mission of the United States. It should be the mission of the tribe of Judah. But they don't know that. Do you know your identity? Do you know your mission? And, of course, we all have a mission to support God's work. And the May-June Tomorrow's World will be coming out here in another month as the lead article by Dr. Meredith, What is the Work of God? But we in God's church have a mission, and I'll just encourage you to see our official statement of fundamental beliefs. Just go to lcg.org and click on About Us, and then you'll see the beliefs, the statement, the official statement of fundamental beliefs for the living church of God. So you can find that on our website at lcg.org. So summary of number one, we need to know who we are, what we are, what our mission is. Number one in examining ourselves and preparing for the Passover is to answer the question, who are you? Number two in preparing for the Passover and knowing ourselves is to describe human nature. It's incredible how many people in the world don't really know what human nature is as described in the Bible. Even psychologists and uh, those, they can identify behaviors and they see behaviors in human being and set up a whole scientific uh, discipline uh, by those observations. And yet, they don't really know what true human nature is like. And God tells us in the Bible. In fact, I gave a telecast years ago on Tomorrow's World. I don't know if it's even on our, uh, uh, our archive on the, on the uh, website. I doubt it is. What is human nature? And I know that many old-timers here can describe what verse would you first go to. There occurs several. But what verse would you go to? to describe human nature. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. That's a good one, isn't it? Let's turn to Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, for what God reveals through the prophet Jeremiah what our nature is like. And I'll tell you, it's, uh, you know, you can... I know even as a teen, carnal teenager, and I didn't know God's truth at the time, I could predict, if we got into an argument with someone, we, I could predict what the rebuttal statement was going to be. You said this and you said that. You know, it was predictable. Human nature, carnal nature, it was absolutely predictable. 17.9, Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Or as the NIV has it, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond Cure. Who can understand it? The NS, the new American Standard Bible, NASB, the heart is more deceitful than anything else, than all else, and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Very colorful description of our nature. Now, I, I hesitate. Should I or should I mention this or not? I, no, I better not. Uh, if you want to see me for the quotable quote from Dr. Hay, uh, see me after services. I'll explain that to you then. But 
you need to know your human nature. Sometimes people see human nature in others. They see their rebellious child or they see uh, carnal people acting wildly, but they can't see their own human nature. And part of repentance, you know, what uh, I've gone through that whole series, but I'll just uh, mention a little bit about true repentance here. And the sermon I gave uh, during the fast day back in March, uh, fasting and repentance. You know, John the Baptist said, Who's warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits fitting for repentance. There can be a shock and a warning. And I was warned. I could just, all I could see was nuclear war on the horizon back in 1959. But I had to hope against hope. So we can, the first step might be a motivation to change because you realize danger, judgment is coming. And that's what John the Baptist said to the Pharisees. But then there's a greater determination after that. And that is to see what you need to change. What sins have I committed? And then begin to see, oh yes, uh, as the Apostle Paul said, I would not have known lust except the commandment had said, you shall not covet. He was able to look into the mirror of God's law and see himself and see his human nature. But that's a part of sin. You know, what defines sin? Sin is the transgression of the law. It says in 1 John 3, 4 in the King James Version. That defines what sin is. And of course, when you say the law is done away, then sin is done away. If you follow that false doctrine of Protestantism. Because where the, Paul said where there is no law, there's no transgression. So if you do away with the law, there's no sin. But God's spiritual law is holy, just, and good, as the Apostle Paul wrote. So you've got to see the sin, identify the sin. And then after that, you need to see not only have you sinned, but you are a sinner. And here was, again, the uh, publican and the Pharisee. And what did the publican say? And the Pharisee said, I, I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all I forget, I, I, all I get. And, uh, but the publican would not even lift up his eyes. He said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he beat upon his breast. The Greek word is the, that is the definite article. He didn't say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, just like all my other friends are all sinners. And so you justify yourself by putting yourself in the whole group of sinners. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He looked at the responsibility of his own sins. And Jesus said he went down to his house justified more than the other. So you've got to see not only have you sinned. I, we had baptizing tours in the earlier years when we didn't have that many congregations and we would often ask people who requested counseling for baptism and say, well, I would ask this one lady, what do you think about your past life? Oh, I've been good all my life. Did you ever do anything wrong? Well, I, I, I think I may have stolen an apple one time. Well, that person, Jesus was not going to save the righteous, in this case self-righteous. This person could not see her nature. And that's what we have to see is our human nature. And you can read, of course, Job, the 42nd chapter, 
in which she said, I have seen you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Wherefore, I repent, I abhor myself, and repent in dust and ashes. He finally saw his own nature in comparison to the glory and the power and the create, creative power of God Almighty. So what is your human nature like? Let's turn to James, the first chapter, James 1. See, I might get through the first two or three of these uh, points before we conclude. We're not concluding right now, though, by the way. James, uh, the first chapter, and verse 21. Can you see yourself in the mirror of God's law? James 1, verse 21. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Be you doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So one can deceive himself. And uh, there are individuals whom we may try to help, as I talked about those who are in denial. You've seen some of the television uh, scenarios of intervention where a whole family will try to help uh, dad because he's an alcoholic, but he's denying it, and all the family try to, to say, look, dad, you, you, this is how you, you lost your temper. You got really angry, and, and the boss at work says you're, you're not really performing up to speed, and they, they try to help him to see himself. Well, you can deceive yourself. So be you doers of the word, that, so you will not be deceiving yourselves. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. Verse 24, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. So we've got to come to the point where we see our own human nature. And sometimes we have blind spots, spiritual blind spots. The uh, Webster's Dictionary gives this definition of a blind spot. The point in the retina, not sensitive to light, where the optic nerve passes through the inner coat of the eyeball. And I know when I was uh, taking science classes decades ago, you did this one little experiment to locate the optic blind spot. And what you do is you put two pencil points uh, directly below you, and you cover one eye, and if the other eye is in direct line with that dot, it will disappear because it's right in line with the blind spot, as uh, which is the optic nerve passing through the inner coat of the eyeball where the retina is not sensitive. So there's the physical blind spot. But the dictionary goes on for a spiritual or uh, psychological blind spot, an area in which one fails to exercise understanding, judgment, or discernment. In other words, we all may have blind spots. You think you're doing good and you're, everything's going well for you, but there's this one little section of your life that you can't see, but others see it. We refer to it as a spiritual blind spot. So we need the courage to examine ourselves and to ask others for an evaluation from time to time. And, I, you know, it's something 
I just uh, don't like to do, but I did, knowing I was giving the sermon today, did muster up the courage to ask my wife last night at dinner, Honey, if there's something that needs to be changed in me, what do you see in me that needs to be changed? <sighs> anyway, she uh, was, was kind and told me something that needed to be changed. That was my turn. So, <laughs> well, hon, it's, uh, she said, well, she asked me, she said, is there something, you know, Dick, that you want, I need to change in my life? Well, and I told her something. It wasn't too, you know, too profound. So she asked me a second, a second, well, is there something else I need to change? So that was very encouraging. But we do need to let others help us to see our blind spots and see, yes, there are areas in which I need to change. And sometimes they're very serious and sometimes very profound. And, of course, the Apostle Paul, I won't turn there, but you can read that section, Romans 7, uh, verses 13 through 24, where he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So that part of repentance has got to come where one person comes to see himself or herself and realize, I am human nature, and I need to change from the jealousy, lust, greed, selfishness, into God's nature of divine love. And, of course, as I mentioned, Job uh, said, I abhor myself, repent in dust and ashes. So you need to see your own human nature, be able to understand it, and realize it's a motivation to change. So number two in examining ourselves and knowing ourselves is describe human nature. Number three is a desire to change and overcome. Once you see that human nature in you, once you see what needs to be changed, have a desire to change and to overcome. Now, the fallacy of the once saved, always saved doctrine is that you don't need to change. They say, oh, yes, you need to do good and you need to do this and that. But you're saved. Don't worry. If you go ahead and kill someone, you know, or you get uh, off base, it's no problem. No, that's not, God, that's not a godly doctrine. The whole purpose of life is for us to change and grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ over a lifetime. There's another kids in church humor story about change in this case. A little boy was overheard praying, Lord, if you can't make me a better boy, don't worry about it. I'm having a good time like I am. End of quote. Well, that's, again, the false doctrine. Come as you are, just as you are. No, you have to repent. That's that R word, the missing R word that Dr. Meredith wrote about in Tomorrow's World magazine that so many ministries neglect. They will not tell you to repent. We do tell our audience to repent. And Jesus did in Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. The first word in preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God was repent and believe in the gospel. And he preached the gospel of the kingdom of God. Number three, we have to have a desire to change. Let's turn to Second Peter 3.18. I've already quoted it two or three times, but let's read it. Second Peter 3, verse 18. It's a memorization verse again. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. How do we grow? Well, you develop over time. You change. You mature over a period of time. 
What is grace? We need to understand the grace and the character of Christ. We appreciate that beautiful, uh, special vocal solo of grace. And uh, I've asked this question before, but I hope that we have improved in our learning. I've asked the question, how many of you know the first verse of the Bible? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How many of you know... there's another survey here. Uh, how many of you know the last verse of the Bible can quote it? Revelation 22, verse 21. How many of you can quote that? Oh, good improvement. We only had three last time I asked, and now we're up to 11. Very good. No, I guess, no, number 15. Thank you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The last verse of the Bible. Just an awesome comforting, a reassuring promise that God gives us. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. His favor, His mercy, His blessings upon you. We have to grow within that framework of grace and favor and the character of Christ. And uh, so when we have to change and overcome, we need to understand uh, 2 Peter 3, verse 18, that it's a a message for us, instruction for us to change and to grow. And the days of unleavened bread show us our part in God's plan of salvation, that we have to put out leaven as a type of sin. We have to overcome the human nature leaven of malice and wickedness and be asking God to replace it with the unleavened spiritual bread of sincerity and truth. We'll learn more about overcoming and how to overcome and what to overcome with the messages you'll hear during the holy days. So God gives us a lifetime to grow and overcome. Let's look at one more promise before we go on to number four here. Number three is desire to change and overcome. But here's one of those wonderful promises that uh, have to do with our lifetime of growing and overcoming. Philippians 1 and verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, the Apostle Paul writes, bringing in the middle of a thought, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So you have that promise. You have to do your part, of course. And you'll hear more about those lessons of your part in God's plan of salvation during the days of unleavened bread. Number three, to examine ourselves, know ourselves, and prepare for the Passover is desire and change, desire to change and overcome. Number four, and I almost actually addressed this in the last uh, commentary, ask yourself, number four, do I have a repentant attitude? Some people have a self-righteous attitude. Some people get very hard-headed. Some people have problems with anger. Some people have problems with uh, laziness. Ask yourself, do I have a repentant attitude? Have you repented of your sins? Have you deeply committed yourself to maintain a repentant attitude to the end of your life? Let's turn to 2 Corinthians, the 7th chapter. 2 Corinthians 7. I already quoted to you Matthew 3, verses 7 and 8, about John the Baptist warning the Pharisees to bring forth fruits fitting for repentance. 2 Corinthians, the 7th chapter, is something that uh, 
you can look at in terms of fruits in your own life. 2 Corinthians 7, starting with verse 8. Of course, the first letter to the Corinthians was very strong. In fact, the Apostle Paul thought he might have been too strong, might have offended them, and, and that would have been all she wrote. But no, they responded to his correction. And even the repentant fornicator uh, had repented, and he was saying, look, uh, let him back into the church because he had repented. Verse 8, so Paul is talking about his first letter here in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might not, you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And I had that sorrow of the world, you know, as a young adult or as a teenager. When I got caught and I was guilty, I was sorry. What was I sorry for? Sorry for getting caught. Sorry for the embarrassment. Not sorry for the sin or the transgression. That's the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation. You know, there's not very much indignation about sin these days. And yet, I was listening to, I guess, a sermon on on a tape here in my car the other day, and I was talking about something that was an abomination. And I thought, you know... That's a good little Bible study topic. Go through the Bible and see what God calls an abomination. One, of course, it says, those who sow discord among the brethren is an abomination. That's uh, Proverbs 6.10, I believe. It's one that I've had to use as a pastor of congregations. You don't let rebels start uh, putting leaven throughout the congregation. And that's what, of course, the Apostle Paul had to do with 1 Corinthians. But we need that indignation that is... Righteous indignation that you abhor evil. Was it Proverbs 8.13? The fear of the eternal is to hate evil. Pride and arrogancy and the froward mouth do I hate. That's the fear of the Lord. And yet today's society makes everything seem all, everything's okay. Every abomination that society is committing is okay. Don't worry about it. No, we need to be stirred up about it need to stand up for what's right and what's wrong and be indignant. What fear, what vehement desire. You know, I've done something wrong, but, you know, I, in the back of my mind, you know, I'll probably do that again. You know, that's not godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is I will not do that again with God's help, and I will desire to do just the opposite. I will try to do the positive and, again, reject the negative. What zeal, what vindication, all these things you prove to be clear in your ma- in that manner. So the Corinthian church had those godly uh, fruits of uh, godly sorrow. We have to ask God for that gift of repentance. Years ago when China afflicted, uh, was afflicted with incredible poverty, um, even major populations are now, even though they're prospering in many of the urban areas, 
One minister asked, have you shed a tear for China? It got my attention. Are we concerned for other human beings in other parts of the world? Of course, we heard in the sermonette, if you have the opportunity, you want to visit some of our brethren in other parts of the world. And I'll ask you today, you know, have you shed a tear for any of the tragedies of the sufferings of people in Japan or back in Chile, although thankfully they did have the rescuing of the miners from way down after uh, 90, almost 90 days, uh, down 2,500 feet under the earth. You know, we have to be concerned, and our prayers make a difference. That's why God tells us to give intercessory prayers for others in First Timothy, the second chapter. It is to pray for kings and magistrates and those who are in authority that we may live a godly life in all peace and godliness. Let's turn to First John, the first chapter, First John 1. And as we come to know ourselves, we want to ask God to show us our blind spots so that we can overcome them. First John 1 and verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. Just, again, wonderful promises that God gives us here in His Word. And it says in verse 7, If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So if we have a repentant attitude, we acknowledge our sin, we express sorrow for our sin, we ask forgiveness of our sin, as it says there in 1 John 1, 9, that we can have the faith that God will forgive us our sins. Number four is ask yourself, do I have a repentant attitude? Number five, ask yourself, do I pray every day? During the past year, have you let a day go by without praying? King David, of course, prayed three times a day. You know, Psalm 55, verse 17, evening, morning, and at noon. Will I pray and cry aloud to you? And, of course, Daniel, Daniel 6.10, got down on his knees three times a day. If you let a day go by without praying, you've transgressed the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. You had another god that was more important than you getting down on your knees and acknowledging your Creator who gives you every breath of life you breathe. And you need to repent of that and ask God's forgiveness and say, I will never do that again unless I'm unconscious in a hospital bed somewhere. You know, I will pray to you every day. You don't let one day go by without praying. And I know I've mentioned to you before how years ago when Dr. Meredith, uh, as uh, one of the theology instructors, professors at Ambassador College, said, look, you, you young men, those of you who are training, you know you need to pray on your knees a good half hour a day. That oh, But I kept that up. I don't know how many years I kept it up. And if I had not, I wouldn't be here today. Because with all the trials and tests and temptations that come along, unless you are close to God, you're going to go astray. And there are many who have, you know, to use a uh, common uh, Protestant word, backslid, you know, over the years. We're just thankful 
that some who were in the Worldwide Church of God and have not attended church for 20, 30, and even 40 years are now as lost sheep coming back into the body of Christ. And that is so inspiring, so encouraging. And we want to welcome you if uh, you've been in that category. As we want to love one another, and yet we pray for one another. But ask yourself, do I have a repentant attitude? Do I pray every day? And, of course, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17, I won't turn there. Pray without ceasing. It has to be an attitude that you are close enough to God that you can pray any time. I've told you the times when I've just had to say, help! You know, it was, uh, you know, I didn't have to think twice about praying to God when I wanted help in an emergency situation. But we want to try to follow the outline prayer in Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. When we honor, we start our prayer by honoring God, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. We honor God. See, it's not on yourself that you begin with. You're honoring the Creator who has all power in the universe. He's omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent through His Spirit, Psalm 139. And you honor God and you honor Christ because you're coming to the Father's throne through the name of Christ. And then you conclude, yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. So you start your prayer focusing on God, and you conclude your prayer focusing on God. And in the meantime, you focus also on the outline prayer, your kingdom come. Why does God's kingdom need to come? Japan, nuclear fallout, you name it. False religions, all kinds of uh, wars and despotic torture and evils and wickedness all over the world. You know, it just seems that when you... Do you let a day go by? Because if you're watching, as we, we heard uh, earlier, if you're watching, then, of course, you, you realize there is a need for God's kingdom. And I don't know, I, maybe there's a day that goes by when I don't say your kingdom come, but... I know I've been saying, I think I said it about four or five times yesterday, uh, you know, your kingdom come, and last night and this morning. Why does God's kingdom need to come? Now, hopefully you know the answer to that internally, emotionally, and you want it with all your heart. And of course, that's near the very end of the next to the last verse of the Bible, which is, even so, come Lord Jesus. You want the Messiah to come. And you have reasons for it. So ask yourself, do you pray every day? And then, of course, there's the promise of Matthew 7, 7. It's a, I didn't realize that someone brought this out in the sermonette, so it's not, uh, I don't give myself credit, someone else. A-S-K. Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. So you follow the A-S-K pattern sometimes in praying. God's promises do work. And uh, number five, ask yourself, do I pray every day? And remember Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, we'll go ahead and take a couple more, uh, seeing it's not midnight yet. (laughs) Number six, do I read the Bible every day? The Bible reveals the mind of God. Let's turn to 2 Timothy 2, 
15, 2 Timothy 2, 15. And again, uh, the King James has the word study, and I think sometimes we misuse it. It can be applied to study, but it, the New King James has uh, diligence. Second um, Timothy 2 and uh, verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And, of course, that means that you study the Bible. You're applying the Bible honestly and sincerely and daily. And, uh, again, I, where was it? I was reading it just the other day. I was listening, I guess, to one of my old sermons years ago. I thought it was the commentary on uh, Thanksgiving and our national purpose, uh, where I made the comment. I was just listening to it on our website. It's an audio comment uh, commentary in this case, both audio and uh, text. And I made the comment uh, that our nation used to be a moral nation when it was a Bible-reading nation. And now we're not so much of a Bible-reading nation. I was reading one uh, survey just recently that in England, one-third of churchgoers admit they did not read the Bible at all in one year's time. Now, one-third of churchgoers didn't read the Bible in a whole year. And yet, I'm encouraging all of you to read the Bible every day. Dr. Meredith has encouraged you to do the same. And we have, of course, the free Bible study course, the online Bible course. And then we have the hard copy. And just absolutely a rich, inspiring Bible study course. And if you haven't really studied it or subscribed to it, I encourage all of you to do it. Even if you just do one question or two questions a day, remember Jesus said, John 6, 63, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Remember the Bereans in Acts 17, 10, they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So number six, in order to know yourself, read the Bible every day. Ask yourself, am I reading the Bible every day? And I'll give one more. Number seven, ask, am I responsive to Christ's words in Revelation 2 and 3? Number seven, am I responsive to Christ's words in Revelation 2 and 3? Revelation 2 and 3 give us a special test. Let's turn to Revelation 2. Revelation, the second chapter. Now, you notice that there are seven churches. It was on a mail route. And uh, I, I try to remember them by ESP, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, and then uh, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Did I get it right? Okay. But anyway, uh, every one of those churches, Jesus says, and uh, here it's in red, for example, Revelation 2, and uh, verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So again, he that has an ear, let him hear. 
How can you prepare for the Passover? How can you know yourself? If you have ears to hear, hear, listen, understand, comprehend, process the message. And what is the message? For Ephesus is, what did Jesus say? Nevertheless, I have this against you, verse 4, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you replant, because you even got the deeds of the Nicolaitans there, which also I hate. Well, it's something you can hate. So let's understand that all of these attitudes are current in the church age at all times, although one attitude will prevail depending on the particular era. Mr. Herbert Armstrong wrote it up this way in his book, The Incredible Human Potential, page 158. These seven messages do apply to seven successive church eras, but they also apply to the whole church through all eras. In other words, the Ephesus characteristics dominated in the first era, and the Laodicean will dominate in the last, but some of these characteristics are found in every era. The messages apply to the whole church. And so I have said and written for more than 50 years, but certain characteristics predominate in the various eras. So, brethren, I encourage you to look over each one of these. Have you left your first love? Some of us have been around for a long time, and we get to taking things for granted. And if we have left our first love, we have to follow what Christ said and repent and do the first works. And go through all of these particular ones. Um, he says in verse 15 of chapter 2, uh, to the compromising church, Pergamos, thus you have those that hold the doctrine of Nicolaitans, which I hate. Verse 16, repent, or else I will come to you quickly with the sword of my mouth. And the corrupt church, I know your works. Verse 19, your love, service, faith, patience. And for your works, the last are more than the first. But you're allowing this Jezebel to compromise you, to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed. So again, he says they needed to repent. They will kill her children. And so again, number seven is to read over Revelation 2 and 3 and be responsive to Christ's words in those Chapters. So we briefly examine seven different ways to know ourselves and what will be the result of your self examination. In some cases, you'll say, I can't do all that. This is overwhelming. This is too much for me. I can't do all that. If you feel that way, it should be a motivation more so to take the Passover because you realize just how inadequate you are and just how much you need the sacrifice of Christ, how much you need God's forgiveness, how much you need His grace and His patience. So be thankful in a positive way as you look back over the past year. Be positive for, thankful for the positive interventions that God has given for you and the blessings He's given you. So as you examine yourself, you can also count the positive things. And if your wife has told you, uh, honey, uh, you actually are a little more patient this year than last year. You can count that as a blessing. And count the things that 
have been blessings from God, His intervention. And as a result of your self-examination, you will see those character flaws, character weaknesses. You'll see how far short you've come of your goals, your responsibilities, and your progress in overcoming. Then you'll more deeply appreciate God's patience and His mercy. You will then desire more earnestly to take the Passover. Jesus said, with desire, I have desired to take this Passover with you. So those of you who are baptized will need to examine yourselves and have that desire. Those of you who are not baptized, you still need to examine yourselves and set goals for the new year. And if some of you are still deeply wanting to be baptized, of course you'll need to see Mr. Bob League and uh, set up counseling with him. Because the Passover, in a sense, is a rededication of what you decided at baptism. Baptism is a total commitment. It's the time when you've given your life totally to God and to Christ, and you love Christ, as he says in warning us in Luke 14, that you love him more than you love husband, wife, children, parents, and your own life also, or you cannot be my disciple. So that is the greatest commitment, is at baptism. Then Passover is just a renewing of that commitment that you made at baptism. So if you do want to counsel, uh, you can see, of course, uh, Mr. League. He may not be able to um, process everyone before the Passover this year, but maybe so. And, of course, to make sure that you've counted the cost and that you really are ready. So after you have examined yourself, take the Passover in faith. Take the Passover with deep appreciation for the blood that cleanses us from all sin. And remember what Paul wrote. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The result of self-examination and knowing yourself should motivate you to more deeply and more, with thanksgiving, take the Passover in faith. So, brethren, know yourself and prepare for the Passover.